This is an ABC podcast. Right, right, five. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision in New York. On September the 11th, people gather, as they did this year, at the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan, as the names of those who died in the terror attacks of 9-11 are read out. Gordon M. Ameth, Jr. Edelmiro Abad. Marie Rose Abad. Andrew Anthony Abate. Vincent Paul Abate. The images of the tall towers falling in September 2001 are unforgettable. But despite an initial aversion, New York's appetite for skyscrapers has come back undimmed. You can see it today in what are called super talls or super slenders, residential towers that now dot the city's skyline. On this rear vision, we'll hear about these controversial new buildings. But first, let's discover something of the city's long love affair with the skyscraper. You know, it was obviously when we have farmlands and pastoral civilizations, we needed to be spread out. That was the important thing. But once we started trading, we had to be proximate to each other. I'm Patrice Derrington. I'm the professor of real estate at Columbia University's real estate development program trading occurs, still does today, and is still critical to having a proximity. So once we started moving into cities, even at the very first beginning when buildings were one-story stone buildings, once they learned how to build in timber and go a little higher, that was the new thing. So all of the new buildings way back in the Middle Ages that started being higher were built in timber because they could do it. And that gave them much more square footage or square metres area within a closer proximity to each other for trading. New York takes that to the extreme, as usual. And what happened here was you started with a very defined area of, of land called Manhattan. And, you know, as that got filled up and more and more people wanted to be there, rather than spread out and and have the disadvantages of that commercially and socially, they decided they had to go up. How can I deliver? Mosette Broderick is the Director of Urban Design and Architecture Studies in the Department of Art History at NYU, the University of New York. Her office is just over the road from Washington Square Park. Could you start off just by telling me where is the first skyscraper? It depends on your definition. A tall building that is taller than the regular buildings around it that has access to the floors via that newfangled elevator or lift. And so that is two of the three features. The other feature is that the spaces are used by a multitude of businesses, not just one tenant, but several tenants. It'll have offices with an anchor tenant, that is a ground floor or just above the ground tenant, usually a bank, which will pay money, which stabilizes the building. So uh, the beginnings of all this start just after the Civil War. 
Uh, as the Civil War ends, Lower Manhattan, which had lost the last of its residential component, there was nobody living there anymore, and people had to take a bus down Broadway to get to the business district, which was Wall Street, Broadway, which was that little section of Lower Manhattan, where the buildings were five and six stories. And interestingly, three kinds of businesses sort of create the first tall, multi-purpose building. And they are insurance companies, newspapers, and inventions. So the first ones are insurance companies, probably because of the losses during the Civil War. So the insurance companies take on a role in having a bigger building. And the first building that sort of has three of the five elements that make uh, what we will call later a skyscraper, that term doesn't exist yet, a tall commercial building would be the Equitable Building at 120 Broadway, just opposite Trinity Church, which is a building that uh, was built to be about double the size of its surrounding buildings. It had, I think, uh, two elevators. It had an up and a down elevator. It had a ground floor tenant so it had an anchor tenant, a bank, if I remember correctly. And then the insurance business is on one floor. And then there are other floors. And they rent out to other people. And you know, at first, people were a little afraid. And so the top floor, the very top floor, didn't rent at first. All of these buildings have a masonry wall. They are held up by stone and brick and rubble. They don't have any metal element. The next layer in 1873, there are two buildings. One of them is a newspaper building. The other is a modern invention, which is the Western Union Telegraph. And what they do, because they need to put their typeface areas in the top of the building, above the other buildings, because they've got better light, but they know that people are going to be nervous about the heavy equipment. And so they reinforce the upper floors of the building with iron tie rods. These two buildings, the Western Union Telegraph Building and the New York Tribune Building, were demolished. The first in 1914, the second in the 1960s. But you can see photos of them at the Skyscraper Museum in Lower Manhattan. Well, we are looking at old newspaper graphics of two buildings that I would consider the very beginning of the skyscraper in New York. I'm Carol Willis, and I'm the founder, director, and curator of the Skyscraper Museum. They are the New York Tribune building, the newspaper, the, the Tribune, and the Western Union building, which was the company of the Telegraph and later the electronic communications that started the 19th century world connection and centrality of New York in terms of the American economy and continent. And these two buildings, which were only about 10 stories tall and about 230 feet, one each has a kind of extended cupola or a, or a tower that rises above the top floor of each building, which are only about 10 stories. So they rise to about 260 feet, which 
is by far the tallest thing in the skyline of lower Manhattan in 1874 when each of them are, are completed. And that's because in the era before these buildings, most buildings are constrained by the leg muscles of the people who inhabited them because elevators hadn't been invented or at least incorporated into office buildings, into business buildings. The invention of the elevator in 1853, or at least the safety mechanism that Elijah Graves Otis of you know, the company that still is Otis Elevator, invented and demonstrated at the Crystal Palace exhibition in New York, gave people a measure of confidence that this new contraption, the technology of taking you up and down in, in a building, was not going to fail and you wouldn't you know, crash to your death. So the eventual exploitation of the technology of vertical transportation that allowed for buildings that were taller than five stories or six stories was first incorporated in lower rise buildings that were hotels and in a dry goods store where a few people, one or two people might get into a cab and be taken to an upper floor. But to be incorporated in an office building where many people would be working on a floor, which really increased the value of every upper floor by making it just as accessible as the lower ones, which had previously been the, the greatest value of, for rental space. This became a kind of revolution that allowed for the exploitation of the value of the land and the urban density and the competition and drive and energy that existed in lower Manhattan and then is manifest in tall buildings in the financial district and especially office buildings which represented the highest possible expression of the value of the land. So the highest and best use was in office buildings in the late 19th century. And it's the introduction of an iron alloy, steel, into building construction that would give birth to the modern day skyscraper. If we look at the last quarter of the 19th century, there's lots of experiments in the advancing technologies, and most particularly in steel framing. So the steel skeleton, which was a much more efficient way to erect tall buildings than a pure masonry structure, which is the way that the Tribune Building and the Western Union Building were constructed. They were brick and stone, and they were big, thick walls. But with the invention and then the perfection of steel skeleton construction, the structure itself, a kind of three-dimensional grid of steel, would come down to the earth on points of support. It would open up the wall where the wall in between the steel was simply infill, an enclosing wall to keep the weather out. And that technology of steel skeleton is what we usually associate with the definition of the skyscraper. And it is developed, and we can see it in the gallery and examples, in the, especially in the 1890s, where buildings started to stretch out to 20 stories and taller. And so at the turn of the 20th century, and 1899, the tallest building in the world is the Park Row building, which still stands on City Hall Park in New York. And it was about 390 feet tall, about 32 stories. And just 10 years later, in 1913, on the other side of City Hall Park is the Woolworth Building, which in 1913 was the tallest building in the world, and it was more than twice as tall as the Park Row Building. So there was an enormous 
amount of growth, the business growth of urban growth, but also the built forms of skyscrapers were able to exploit the new technology in order to really stretch into the sky. The evolution of the New York skyline is not just limited by technology, but also by government regulation. Landmark legislation governing tall buildings shaped the design of New York's two best-known skyscrapers, the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building, constructed at the end of the 1920s. A few years earlier, the city had passed a comprehensive zoning law, the first of its type in the world, that while it set no height limit, did constrain the design of New York skyscrapers, giving them a kind of wedding cake shape. If you think of the great Art Deco skyscrapers of New York, like the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building, they have a, a heavy base that's about you know, 15 stories tall, and then a kind of intermediate set of what the zoning law called setbacks. So they kind of pyramid up like a ziggurat. And then often they have a tower that emerges from a quarter of the site to unlimited height, as the zoning law allowed, so that you have a slender tower that can rise to 50 or 60, or in the Empire State Building, 86 stories, and then some kind of decoration on the top that's kind of added to that to give it a distinctive character and a you know, highly identifiable status in, in the skyline. So we have in the history of the New York skyscraper a kind of continuous development where buildings keep getting taller and taller and taller until 1916 when a new kind of generation of buildings are these series of ziggurats that give New York what we think of as the kind of black and white skyline of noir film or the black and white films of newsreels and the Empire State Building or King Kong. You know, these are the kind of images that we've all experienced that we carry around that is this early mid-century um, of New York's identity. And that lasts until the post-war era when changes in technology, the technology, little bit of steel construction with a welded steel frame that's lighter, but most especially in the facades and the, what we call the curtain wall, uh, stretched glass, sometimes you know thin mullions that hold the windows. So the buildings seem to be these towers of glass that are with a, a light stretched skin where the windows don't open, so they're hermetically sealed. This was an opportunity that was created by the technology of air conditioning and also fluorescent lights, which allowed you to have very deep space away from the windows, but still illuminated by cool fluorescent lights. Unlike in the earlier period where windows had to open in order to keep the space cool and the windows had to be large so because daylight was the principal source of illumination in the workplace. So after World War II with fluorescent lights and air conditioning and glass curtain walls, you had a building that was sealed on the inside. It was internally climatized, but it also had this solar gain from the imperfect technology of big glass panes of the time and that heated up inside. So they were very energy inefficient, energy consuming. And I suppose the most extreme example of that was the original World Trade Center towers. And 
the twin towers that were more than 200 feet on a side, so nearly, sorry for the American measurements, but nearly an acre in space uh, for 40,000 square feet for each floor, 110 floors, two towers, 220 acres of office space just in those two buildings alone. And they were of such titanic scale and so energy inefficient in a time when the consumption and the price of energy was not that high that a single light switch would turn on an entire floor. So the concerns in the 1960s and 70s were uh, the image of modernity was to use technology but also to waste energy in a way that seems you know, incredibly outrageous to us today in, in an age of, of climate change. The World Trade Center, a large complex of seven buildings in the financial district of Lower Manhattan, begun in the 1960s, was New York's grandest post-war project. Finished in 1975, it symbolized the economic might of the US and became the target of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The once towering World Trade Center in New York's financial district is no more. It took two direct hits when two hijacked passenger aircraft were flown into its two towers. In Manhattan, people watched on in horror and disbelief. Later, the Twin Towers, each 110-storey skyscrapers, where 40,000 people go to work each day, collapsed to the ground. So there was an immediate reaction against skyscrapers and against working as skyscrapers. At that time, I had been managing David Rockefeller's investments, property investments, and we had just sold Rockefeller Center. Uh, so, <laughs> so we were a little relieved because, you know, when we had bought it, it was the crash of the early 90s, and so now we were coming out of that. So, but, you know, people, people's memories are short when it comes to, particularly in New York, when it comes to money. So they came back. They needed to be close again, and they came back. It's like post-COVID will be, people say they don't want to be back in the office. You watch. When there's more money to be made, being in the office, they'll be back. So that is what happened. It was very much definitely a reaction, as you're suggesting, that we don't want to be there, but then it passed rather quickly. Now, of course, the buildings did work hard to put in extra security, big security systems. Before that, you could just walk into an office building and take the elevator to the floor. Now they had security systems. You had to go through a whole lot of checking at the front desk, couldn't enter the building without a pass, and so on and so on. So they were not going to let potential bombers into the building. Similarly, driving under buildings, we forget that there's a whole lot of parking and access under buildings that became incredibly much more secured. Plus, we put in better fire systems. One of the problems with the World Trade Center was that that steel melted faster than we had anticipated. It used, you know, rocket fuel, but it definitely was an issue. So the concern with building stronger buildings was important after that as well. Today's World Trade Center is anchored by one World Trade Center, the tallest building in the US by virtue of its spire. And although commercial skyscrapers have continued to rise, especially on the west side of Manhattan around the Hudson Yards development, it's the building of a new kind of residential skyscraper that has made headlines. 
These so-called super-talls or super-slenders are dotted all over Manhattan, standing out above the bulkier conventional skyscrapers that surround them. Mosette Broderick says another 21st century phenomenon has been the transformation of some of the older office buildings in the financial district into apartments. There's a lot of that. The area around Wall Street is indeed where people lived 200 years ago. But nobody's lived there since then. So this is very, very new. What you're talking about is repurposing the wonderful office buildings of the glory days uh, before the stock market crashed. And they're turned into apartments. The problem is light. You have to have windows. How do you do that? It's like a church. How do you get apartments in a church building? It's very difficult because you need the light, the lights on the side. In the early days, what you would have are these corridors going to a window. So you'd have apartments that looked like animal sheds, and then they go to the window. So what are we going to do with them? And that's where we are now. Now, the ones in Lower Manhattan have been turned into somewhat pricey. Funny story. Number 45 Wall, for example, which was a skyscraper of the 20s, if I remember correctly, uh, which was a dorm for this university briefly. And then it was turned into apartments. All of a sudden, Tiffany's sprang up there. There's no food, there's no dry cleaning. Can you imagine trying to move in or trying to move around in Wall Street uh, as a resident in that neighborhood? It's not a good idea. What about the other thing that's really struck me on this visit to New York? Some of these very narrow, thin, tall skyscrapers. We're having a lot of trouble with that. Because of the original plot of New York City and the tower building we spoke about as the first metal frame building on Lower Broadway there that didn't last very long, because the original plots were 25 feet across and 100 feet deep, we had this. So there was a new zoning rule that you had to have 45 feet. So you had to have, so to speak, two row house plots in order to build a building. But now, where people are trying to get, and, and part of the issue now, especially true on the 57th Street Billionaire Row, is the buildings can be very, very narrow at the top. And so that's because you don't want to kill Central Park. But with the famous example of a tall, thin building that's not working right now is 432 Park, which is a building, a residential building on about 54th and Park Avenue, which you can see as you go in or out of New York City, rising like a huge chimney in the middle of Midtown. It was the first super tall of that order, but the people who bought units in it in the mid-teens of, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, they're now suing Vitkoff, is that his name, uh, the developer, for $125 million because the building creaks, the building sways, the building is scary at night. I've actually had students whose family lived there who told me that's really true. So, I mean, it's not dangerous. They're not going to fall over. But it's disconcerting. So those tall, thin buildings have a problem. Many of these pencil-thin apartment buildings have been plagued by complaints and lawsuits from owners. And there are still questions about safety. Patrice Derrington says the super talls have been controversial. Now we have what we call it Billionaire's Row here in New York, up along 57th Street. And uh, it has there and a couple of blocks around it, right on the southern end of Central Park. So all these people have beautiful views over Central Park. The buildings went up skinny, 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 ultra-tall buildings, right? It was a quirk or a loophole 
in the zoning laws that enabled these buildings on a very small footprint to actually go as high as they possibly could. Many people were horrified. I personally quite like soaring buildings. It's what we've done as humans and, uh, you know, whether we're a little higher than usual, that's okay. But, you know, many people, and of course, they talk about shadows being cast and so on. You know, it's a skinny building, the shadows pass very quickly. But there was a reaction against it. These things are, you know, imposing and so on. Now, a lot of engineers, of course, will also say that these things are yet to be tested in terms of exit during a fire. So unfortunately and tragically, that is still a question that remains unanswered. Over the decades, have the laws, the building codes in relation to skyscrapers changed very much? Not substantially, but definitely significant tweaking, if we can sort of put it that way. What happens is that there's a constant argument socially about the imposition of tall buildings. These are private entities, developers, corporations, very wealthy condominium owners and so on. Should the public be confronted or disadvantaged by these, the existence of these? One thing that has happened that was pretty significant in its impact was the negotiation between a building owner or, you know, a developer and what they could offer to the public in terms of a response. So we actually have some very interesting consequences and results of those, such as one Vanderbilt Avenue, which is a lovely building built very much adjacent to Grand Central Station. So you'd think, oh, ultra high-rise building beside Grand Central Station, that must be a disaster. Well, fortunately, what they've done is they spent 200 million creating a plaza between this building and Grand Central Station, opening up all of the subterranean access to Grand Central Station, really providing a lot of public amenities. So that is the way now that there has to be a dynamic, some give and take between the private sector and the public benefit when doing these buildings. And even though it was introduced legislatively, it now becomes a modus operandi of a developer. They know that their building is going to be better received If they do this, they understand that they have a commitment to the society, to the neighbourhood that they're within, and they're ready to make these type of compensations. I started the Skyscraper Museum because I'm an urban historian and an architectural historian, and I felt like these buildings needed to be explained to people in a way, but that takes out the kind of romance of skyscrapers because after all that word is a romantic word, skyscraper. It's a word that creates in your mind's eye an image against a silhouette, an image against the sky. And it's that romance of standing atop the Empire State Building and the observation deck, which anybody can access for the price of a ticket, and looking out not just at the city below, because there's always going to be a city below if you're in a skyscraper, it's an urban building type, but looking out at the horizon too, you know, that when you're at that elevated height, you see the collective city, but you also see 
in some cases, the curvature of the earth. It's an incredibly powerful image, and, and I think for most people an emotional one, whether it's awe or terror, I suppose, at, at, at the great height, there's a, an emotional investment in the skyline of looking at the city from great heights that I think that no one can be immune to that. Carol Willis, founder, director and curator of the Skyscraper Museum. The other guests were Patrice Derrington, the professor of real estate at Columbia University's real estate development program, and Mosette Broderick, the director of urban design and architecture studies in the Department of Art History at NYU. This rear vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Russell Stapleton for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.